everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, we were joined by Payman Momeni, the CEO and co-founder of Fairblock, a modular layer for programmable privacy and Web3 verticals such as DeFi, DAOs, gaming, and much more. In this episode, we spoke about the values and importance of on-chain privacy, how the Fairblock team's co-founders met, how Fairblock's privacy solutions can reduce costs for Web3 projects, how Fairblock solutions are applicable to EVM, Cosmos, and other L2 blockchains, the forthcoming launch of the Fairblock testnet, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode, and that you can check out our disclaimer page on neonewstoday.com to learn more about what tokens we're holding. With all that said, I really enjoyed this conversation with Payman, and I hope you enjoy it too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today, we're joined by Payman Momeni, the CEO and co-founder of Fairblock, an R&D team currently focused on protecting users from blockchain front-running using applied cryptography. How are you doing today, Payman? Great, great. Really happy to be here. One of my favorite podcasts, honestly. Yeah, that was super cool that you were giving some kudos beforehand about the types of guests and the conversations we've had on the pod. So thank you so much for listening. I'm psyched to have you join the podcast. I kind of want to just jump into the deep end with you. And I know that asking kind of like a super high level question can be daunting, but I think in terms of painting where this conversation is going to go, I think folks will really be interested in hearing about this. So I'm just curious, what are your high level thoughts on the key privacy concerns that people should have when it comes to their on-chain activity. And coupled with that, how can privacy and transparency complement one another when it comes to these on-chain transactions? So let's just start with this way. Privacy, like for, I don't know, some bad reasons and because of the regulations and also some kind of bad leadership, some kind of fanboy behaviors and <laughs> inside the crypto ecosystem is often affiliated with, I don't know, tornado cash, money laundering, tax evasion, North Korea, this kind of stuff. But this is not the reality. Privacy is like much bigger and we should somehow normalize it and have some kind of fresh wave of privacy. Let's begin with our like daily lives. So even all of those people who are saying that privacy is bad, like we should regulate them, we should like ban them, they don't show their bank balances to you. Like all of those CEOs in their companies, they don't show anything about their strategies. Even though they say that we've got nothing to hide, we are fully compliant, it's not in your best interest to like fully show everything that you have in your hand as a person, as an individual, as or as a company. And sometimes it's not even that serious. It's not about like finance necessarily. When we are playing poker, basically in your real life, we don't show your hand. When you're playing your battleship, you show your monitor to the other guy. My point here is really that in real life, like when you vote, when you are playing games, when you are engaging with any kind of financial activity, it's common sense that you shouldn't show what you've got, right? So if we are building some kind of infrastructure to destroy the bureaucratic systems like traditional systems and putting them on chain in decentralized way, 
in a more efficient and like user-friendly way, this is a missing part. It used to be this one of the selling points of blockchains alongside decentralization, but because of the bad leadership and the fanboys and master robot fans, I think it's completely ignored that it's like a really natural and important thing to have on chain, right? And starting with that, so privacy is not just about like hiding your activity. It's just not exposing. It's just taking control of your private data in various layers of the ecosystem, right? And another problem here is that a lot of solutions like ZK rollups and that ZK project, FHE projects, like Flashbus, all of them are arguing that we are solving the privacy problem completely. But this is not the case for a lot of reasons because privacy really has different layers. It starts with your IP level in the like infra level. So projects like Tor or Neem or like any VPN, they will protect you on the IP level in the Web2 sense somehow. But there is another thing about ZKs is that typically they are limited. It takes a lot of time for generate the proof, but also the applications are limited. It can be used for sure for like something like tornado cache, mixing services, or ZK rollups. But in ZK rollups, as we've seen, they don't really solve the ZK privacy problem because you are submitting all of the data to the centralized server or like posted on chain. So I think we should really understand what we are doing and what are challenges. So let's talk about threats. I think one of the remaining challenges is having unchained privacy, at least some kind of privacy that protects the data inside your messages, your transactions, and protect you from like other people, malicious activities, malicious actors like bots, your competitors, or also like just enabling the basic logic of application, even in gaming or like, you know, governance or like DeFi auctions. So it's either about threats or building the application, even like in the first place. And Obviously, the most popular version of having privacy is encrypted mempools. So you can protect yourself from bad MEV bots who are sandwiching you, exploiting your transactions. But I think since swapping is the most popular activity and people just know Uniswap and they get front run, this is the only like, popular example of that, which is like everybody talks about MEV. But if you think about MEV in a general sense of having asymmetrical access to your information before executing your transaction, it can be suddenly really big. So in all of those examples that I mentioned, as a block proposer or an infra provider, sometimes there is some kind of privilege, some kind of asymmetrical advantage to you that you see some kind of information after the user or like other competitors, and you can tweak that and make more money or censor people. And these are the reasons that we really need privacy for institutions who don't want to like share their activities or even mainstream users who don't want to fail their orders or just want to interact with simple games that needs privacy on chain. That was awesome. You touched on so many different things that I can't wait to talk about, like privacy and governance, random number generation with games, MEV and sandwich attacks with DeFi. But before we jump into all of that and what Fairblock is doing to provide these solutions. Before we started recording, you mentioned that you were studying or you did study for your PhD. So I'm just curious, what's kind of your academic background? What did you study for undergraduate? And then what did you get your PhD in? So one of the reasons that I really care about blockchains on the ideological level is the fact that I was unfortunately born in a unlucky place like Iran. 
And Iran, I've tasted a lot of the bad parts of not having access to free internet. We didn't have really free internet. We should like use VPNs on a daily basis, every minute. And I don't know, bad power of centralization. And even not having access to like the free financial world because both of the government and also other governments like US were like basically sandwiching normal people by sanctions and all of the other regulations. People are panicking. So you don't have like any access to any flexibility to like work. And given that, and also my experience living in Canada or like my experience living in Hong Kong, seeing the effect of not having privacy, like heavy targeted advertising, gathering your personal information. I'm not saying that just because I'm working on privacy is I think it's like one of the important problems to solve for every country and like even normal population of the US or other countries in the West are realizing that after all of this stuff happening in the elections or like all of the news and seeing the power of centralized stuff that is happening in all of the media. So this is my personal experience. So I really care about freedom, privacy, decentralization, and basically combining that with seeing that the traditional banking is really failing us. The simplest utility of blockchains for like a lot of money transfers seeing that it takes $50 to do a simple wire transfer and it should do it in person in branch in Canada or like US, it makes us really think that it's not the future. So it's really hard to assume that in 20 years, we are still relying on this kind of very limited, slow and haphazard logic of finance. So this was my ideological background. And I started on machine learning because it was cool and it's still cool. and <laughs> You can do a lot of magical stuff. Around like 10 years ago, I did a lot of research. I did my like undergrad research in electrical engineering and like machine learning. And I did an internship in Hong Kong, which was very interesting working in the like center of AI and working on things like ChatGPT that is like popular now six years ago, seven years ago. And I was working specifically on machine learning for medical data or like psychology. So in all of these cases, you should provide personal data to some kind of centralized server. It should be your DNA, your EEG signal of your brain, your fingerprints, and then like they have some models to run something about you and send it back to you. So it got me really concerned, especially after my job experience in something like Uber in Iran, because they were collecting personal data without any kind of privacy and they typically get hacked on of these companies. So I really experienced the importance of having some kind of privacy infrastructure. I realized that privacy is not something like luxury of having my own boundary. It has like really deep effects. In future, if you share your DNA with ChatGPT, they will probably sell it to advertisers, right? Hospitals to Kaiser so they can get back to you and sell drugs, right? So I got really interested to have some kind of mechanism like FHE or SGX, technologies like this kind of cryptographic magical boxes. So you can encrypt your data, send it to the server and run the model on top of them and get the encrypted result back to you, right? So this was my intro to how to combine this kind of machine learning stuff with cryptography magic boxes. And then I started my graduate school initially to work on this. But at the same time, I met my supervisor, Sergey Gorbanov with experience running the cryptographic team in Abroad. And at that time, he was starting his path toward Axelar. 
So I learned about the possibilities of applied cryptography in blockchains first, and because they were using great threshold signatures, he introduced me to MEV. And it was intellectually also very interesting because like, MEV combines finance with game theory and like decentralized systems, and you can combine it with cryptography. And the best part is that people care. Actually, people care about what you are building. Suddenly, people care a lot about your cryptography libraries and what you are building. And you can have some kind of practical applications, really. So you shouldn't wait for your research or like library to be realized in 30 years. So this was my original story, except I've done obviously like investments in crypto and Bitcoin. But like this was my original story, my first step to working professionally in crypto and blockchains. Yeah, that's super cool that you come to it from more of a technology base, specifically like using your background in machine learning and seeing how the sausage is made and how companies can leverage the data that we give them. Oftentimes, we don't know that we're giving them to sell us crap we don't need. America is one third of the world's total medical GDP, basically. So like America buys a third of the world's medication. And we have like 365 million people here, which is not even a tenth of the world's population. So I guess before we delve further, when you were in Iran, did Bitcoin come on your radar? Did building on Ethereum, anything like this? Or were you just kind of still focused on your studies and kind of paying attention to the larger, bigger technological aspects of what decentralized projects can provide? No, I was like obviously very interested in Bitcoin. Even in 2014, I had some kind of note in the university with some other people or like in our house because electricity in Iran is way cheaper than any other country. I was running like Bitcoin in the early days. It was interesting from two points, just like the new technology, the new concept, the philosophy of what brings value to the assets, what's backing these transactions, fighting about this with my dad, arguing this with my dad was like really interesting that what's really valuable as a like currency and running the technology, like running a full node distributor system. It was pretty interesting. And one other thing that makes it really interesting more for me, even more than all of these, is that in Iran, the currency is going down every day in a very interesting <laughs> way. We tasted the inflation and all of the stuff that people are just now getting just a taste of that in the US, like way before in a way harsher way. So this is the reason that a lot of people in Russia, Iran, or like Turkey are actually holding Bitcoin. So like 30% of people are holding Bitcoin. They don't know anything about blockchains or decentralized network. The only thing that they know is that it's a really good thing to secure your funds and not lose your cash value. And obviously, it also opens some kind of flexibility for sending money to your family because you cannot do that because of sanctions, even if you want to send some money for tuition of your son in the UK. So you can use Tether. A lot of people are using Tether inside Turkey or like Russia to just send money to their family. And these are my previous understanding of Bitcoin and what but I thought it can be like interesting and people are talking about that side of the thing recently more and more. But about the technology, to be honest, I didn't know that much. Right? So I just know about like miners and hashing and this kind of stuff. But 
on the other side of the coin, like a DFT mechanism or a consensus mechanism and all of the technical nuances, which is itself very interesting engineering, got me into grad school. Cool. Something that I'm curious to hear about is, and we're going to dive into Fairblock in a minute, I promise. But you guys are building privacy-enabled solutions for dApps. You're not just building like a standalone blockchain, even though you guys do have your own chain. I'm just curious, though, what are your thoughts on privacy composability, like the building blocks, leveraging privacy tools? And what are the opportunities or constraints that those might have over a privacy-focused chain like Monero or Zcash or something like Secret Network? I think privacy is very important, but it's not definitely, it's just a very important feature. It's not the product itself, right? And as we've seen, even outside crypto, nobody is actually using Tor, although it has great engineering and protects you like privacy and all of those stuff. Let's face the reality, nobody uses that unless you are like someone who really care about once just test it out. Or maybe you've heard of dark web, you want to try that, but for daily usage, nobody used that. And the reason for that is two reasons. It's like really hard to install another explorer or the UX is like really bad. It's really slow. And also it affiliates you with all of those bad players in the darknet, I don't know, selling drugs. So the PR is also really bad. And I think this is exactly what has happened in crypto. The PR is obviously really bad. It's like even worse for privacy because of the regulations, tax evasion, hackers, North Korea, this kind of stuff. So people are really afraid to use these kind of tools since you can use it, but maybe the US government will ban you later or like arrest you even if you've just like committed to the GitHub, right? And then the other thing is that the UX part. We have some kind of really interesting solutions, but they are not where there are actual users or like actual applications. So most of the users are some of the major L1s. So it can be like Solana, Ethereum, Cosmos chains, or like L2s. But other than that, there is no like real incentive or real application for people to switch to some kind of a standalone privacy chain just for privacy. There may be some kind of initial activity because of airdrop or grants and other stuff, but it will eventually die and the lack of liquidity and user, it makes it a worse market for you. So it's not a like really good competitor to other solutions. And the only like really successful instance of public key cryptography in reality outside Web2, I think is HTTPS. HTTPS is exactly protecting your communication from all of those bots, all of those like malicious parties in early days of internet. And someone came up with this like really nice solution of having public cryptography for securing your communication when you're just like interacting with any website or any Web2 application. And the success of that is not really about technical stuff, how big is it or how secure is it. The success of that is basically as a developer, it's really easy. You just get your certificate, there is some kind of organization. It's like integration. It's not that hard. And even better for users is you can see the lock button. Everybody knows HTTPS. Everybody knows the lock. Even my grandmother knows HTTPS, but they don't know what's happening in behind. They don't know like Tor, right? So my vision for blockchain is that like privacy is important. We should do our best to have something 
exactly where users need and where like developers need that. We shouldn't have this kind of like learning curves or buying tokens or changing frontends. There is only one way for having something in privacy space that makes sense. And it's like integrating it wherever like users need that. And it's a, obviously a really hard path. There's a lot of challenges, a lot of technical difficulties of integrating these solutions, a lot of security assumptions, but I think it worth the try. Other paths has not been like really successful. There's like great, I have great respect for their work and everything, but it's not something that I can imagine would be the case in 10 years. You bring up a lot of good points, and I think the nuances are actually quite hilarious because the most privacy-preserving transactions that any American can do is buying something with cash. And you're right. like People don't care about privacy. They don't care about personal data ownership. We don't care about any of this because oftentimes to download an app or to leverage these privacy-oriented solutions requires taking an extra step. And the average application consumer wants something super simple and super easy delivered to them as quick as possible so they can start doom scrolling through whatever application they just downloaded. So there's a really tricky balance there. But I think luckily for us, we're in a space in the crypto space where at least the majority of our users might actually care about this. So something I'm curious to hear about You guys did successfully conduct a fundraising round that concluded at the end of last year. But before we talk about what got your investors psyched on what you guys are working on, I'm curious to hear the origin story of Fairblock. How did the founding members find one another? Yeah, that's actually the hardest part of a startup so far for me, finding like a good co-founder. So my current co-founder is not my first chance. It's like somehow like dating, you should date few people quickly and sound like you're perfect match. There's a lot of things like you should complete yourself in technical skills, in your communication skills, but also like how you can communicate with each other, sharing like same values and other stuff. And it's generally really hard to build something from zero to something big together. So it's like basically like a life partner. So it's really important to find the right partner. And I think in crypto, investing in right people for like general investors or as a founder, I think it's like 80% of the path. Nobody cares about what you are building right now because there's not a lot of application or users, but we know that there's a lot of smart people and you should start building and eventually you should be one of the major companies or people inside the ecosystem. So in my path, we have a great blockchain club in University of Waterloo and University of Waterloo is historically a very good place for a lot of blockchain companies starting with Vitalik himself, Optimism, like Liam from Optimism, Axelar and Sergey. Tendermint is also like not that far in nearby city and our consensus. So there is a good culture historically in finance and blockchains and privacy with Blackberries headquartered in Waterloo. So people are generally interested and there's a lot of great developers here. And I started engaging with my blockchain club in the University of Waterloo, I started my path as a researcher, leading the research team. And I met my co-founder, the current co-founder, in a hackathon in Toronto when I was visiting them with the club. Uh, we started talking about technical things and how we can like, communicate together. And the good thing was that while I can cover 
the cryptography stuff, like research stuff, or designing the systems and products. He has a lot of actual native experience in crypto, like running MEV bots himself as like one of the very first people running MEV bots, have a lot of experience with tokenomics and really great developer, Rust developer or like Go developer. So somehow we complement each other like skills and mindset. And I think it was a really good combination. I'm American, so I don't even know my own geography of my country. Is Waterloo on the east coast of Canada? Yeah, it's like pretty close to Toronto. Okay, cool. Because we had Nathan Windsor from Landslide on, and he's got heavy ties to the Avalanche Cosmos ecosystems, and those came from Cornell. So I'm just kind of like getting the vibe that in the northeast part of the U.S. and on the eastern coast of Canada, that there's probably like a large technological hub. And we're just kind of blessed that there's a lot of blockchain activity. In 2022, I got to travel to 10 different universities in the U.S., schools I would have never been able to get into, like Berkeley, University of Michigan, and got to meet all the blockchain clubs at these universities. And there was just so much activity that was going on there. I was going to be surprised if all the students we spoke with even finished their schooling because of the cool projects they were working on that they could have just dropped out and started working on. Yeah, a lot of people are dropped. Like, 10 years ago, bad students were dropping off or like just very exceptional students were dropping off. But right now, if you are more than average, <laughs> why are you dropping off to work in crypto or AI? I think it makes sense in engineering. It's because the practice is more important than the science. Yeah, I agree. So you spoke about how it's like dating to find your co-founder, the person that you can communicate with that matches your skill sets and also has different skills that you don't have and vice versa. You have skills that they don't have. When you get together and you guys align on the value of privacy and you bring these diverse skill sets, you with your background in machine learning and your co-founder who was building like MEV bots and was just kind of tinkering around in blockchain, there's a lot of ideas and concepts that you guys probably are just blowing each other's minds about. But how do you decide how to narrow down and whittle down and focus on your sort of initial framework? What was that process like for Fairblock? And maybe we can use this to talk about some of the products that you guys have been building as an example for how you decided what to really focus on. Sure. So to correct something, I started my idea on Fairblock not with my co-founder, like he joined me later. So actually, going back to my story, coming to grad school in Waterloo, working with Sergey, learning about MEV and like social cryptography or like other FAG, SJX, ZK stuff. So I started working on MEV, bad MEV prevention with like threshold encryption. And I wrote my thesis, my paper, and did a lot of research on that. It was like very early. It was just like flash bots and even them themselves, it was just a centralized bot. And I got really good feedback about MEV itself. It was really interesting. And prevention of the bad side of the things while keeping the good side of the things was like an interesting idea to work on. It is still a really interesting problem to work on. So this was my original path. And then to bridge my sort of engineering academic background to the industry, I went through like Axelar's grants program and got the Cosmos grant, which was like big. And that sort of took me to the next level. So it was like serious 
interest from the industry to what I was working on and in my cryptography background, my understanding of MEV space. And then around the same time, while I was finalizing the seed round, I met my co-founder. So it was almost around the same time. This is the second time in our conversation you've mentioned a grant. Initially, you mentioned that grants might draw someone into the ecosystem or into blockchain in general. And then you mentioned that you got a Cosmos grant as well. So maybe you can also share a little more. What was that process like? How did you go about looking for grants, for ecosystems to build in? How did you land on Cosmos? And then maybe you can leverage that to also talking about the SDK and Fairy Ring. Yeah, of course. So Cosmos, I think it's really interesting and it's like somehow proving the point as we grow, but it's not just about like the community or like what you can have there. I think the most important part of Cosmos is the app chain thesis and the technical flexibilities, which are not the same thing. There's a lot of technical flexibilities that you can have and experiment with them and build your connections with other teams. And there's a lot of talent in general. And we can see like flow of all of the ideas from Cosmos to other ecosystems every day. I started on MEV prevention on like Ethereum mainnet. And as you know, there's a lot of challenges and basically on technical level and also by proving yourself to the inner circle of people. And on the technical level, it was like really expensive because of gas consumptions on that time. And also you should only have a smart contract at that time. It was a lot of technical challenges. And around the same time, I saw Axelar's architecture because of Sergey. And I realized that we can actually have something very similar to Axelar, a blockchain, but not just for having it like separate technology and like ecosystem on top of that. In their case, they are providing cross-chain transactions and asset transfers or like general message passing. But in our case, we are providing decryption keys or privacy services, privacy toolkits in general as a chain. So while we are going to have some applications on our own chain, but it's going to be really general. We can provide this kind of value to privacy value and other kind of applications to all Cosmos chains and like major L2s. It makes a lot of sense because in general, cryptography normally needs some kind of changes, modifications inside your own consensus as a like MPC solution, even if you have SJX in your nodes. So it's not really even practical having that in all of the Ethereum validators. And we can easily do that in Cosmos and we can provide this value to other people while we still have some kind of security. Even like Ethereum validators can run our chain or like Cosmos hub validators can run our chain. This was the interesting part because it's even possible. The second part is that it abstracts away all of the additional costs of having that. As an example, like Cosmos's chain itself or like Anoma, they've been talking about having threshold encryption in their mempool, but it was just an idea, right? They have never executed the idea in practice. And the main reason for that is that you should send like private key shares in your very own mempool, and it basically breaks the whole mempool. It's like expensive. You don't have enough space for that. And my idea is that, first of all, we use identity-based encryption, which reduces the bandwidth overhead by a lot, like 95% depends on the system size, but we don't want to generate keys for each message. It's just for each block or each condition. That's like the technical point of view. But an interesting part to complete that is that we don't need to even communicate between our validators in that chain. We can take that 
do whatever we want in our own chain, generate the single key or like whatever we want and like relay it through IBC or like fast surveys that we have to other Cosmos chains or like L2s. So the idea is that you can still send encrypted transactions or host any kind of privacy preserving application on Cosmos chains, either like the app chain itself or on top of the chain or in L2s like Arbitrum or this kind of like role kit sequencers and basically everywhere you can host them, you can receive them and we can generate the keys for you and abstract away all of the costs and send it to whatever ecosystem that we want. This is like the main idea that got us really interesting. We started with like MEV prevention, just a high level encryption of mempool and protecting you from like sandwiching, specifically in the case of swapping. But we then realized that we are not directly working on MEV. Like we are working on MEV, but it's just a subset of what we are doing. We are solving a like much general problem, which is on-chain privacy, like protecting the contents of your transaction. As I mentioned, it's not just about MEV. It can be about like limit orders, intents, private governance, gaming, randomness generation, sequencing, auctions for DeFi or infra or like even like NFT auctions. So we realized that it has great potential and we can develop our partnerships and applications with all of these ecosystems and bring it to everywhere, like anywhere that has a lot of users and liquidity, there will be this kind of applications and we can solve. Yeah, so you mentioned that you started with MEV and then it became apparent that there's so many verticals in the blockchain space. There's DAOs, there's DeFi, there's NFTs, there's governance. So for DeFi and governance and other sort of like gaming solutions, the Fairblock chain can act as the privacy layer based off of the different types of encryption and decryption that you guys use. So something that to me sticks out is you're able to build the building blocks, but how will folks from other L2s, other app chains, other non-EVM ecosystems like Solana or whatever, how will folks be able to use the building blocks that you guys are creating? What is going to be included in Fairblocks SDK, and how do you build for your current users who might be the developers? Like, what's the pipeline look like for feedback? So, one thing that I'm really proud of of what we are doing in Fairblock is that we are not just a like research team or working on like fancy cryptographic stuff. We've been like very actively working with this kind of Cosmos chains or like applications on Ethereum both on protocol level or like infra level and like L2s. And they are like really different projects and we either have like some kind of project in-house for them or like we have some kind of shared idea that they will use our network for building this kind of privacy preserving applications. And there's a lot of technical challenges and nuances on how it can actually work, this kind of integrations and making it work and making it easy for developers to build is the most challenging part. Having it inside our own chain and in an like isolated way, we had that like one year ago. But during the last year, we've been like mostly focused on making it happen like chain agnostic way in a sense. And the way that it works is that we have some kind of SDK. It's really different, to be honest, from Cosmos ecosystem to Arbitrum or other L2s. But the high level logic is the same. So if you are a Cosmos chain, you can easily install our module. I call it private intense layer because intense in general sense, whatever you want. It's not just DeFi. It can be like vaults or like everything else, even gaming. And we can have like a lane or layer of 
privacy preserving transactions in the mempool. And basically after installing that module, all developers, they can start receiving encrypted transactions directly. So it's not through for block. After the installation, which takes like half an hour, everyone, all of the developers can use that flexibility. So it can be any like a smart contract or something that is baked into like consensus. And they can install them. They can use this kind of flexibility and they can receive it. It will be in the block. And whenever they want to distribute transactions, we can provide that. We've made it in a way that is easy to build. We've actually hired one of our employees to just focus on building applications. So we didn't have a lot of background with consensus or like Cosmos or L2s or whatever, but he's a really good application developer. It was a really good experiment for us to build these kind of applications and also to test our hypothesis that it's actually possible for people to build. And he's been actively developing different applications like private governance, gaming, simple DeFi transfers or like auctions on different ecosystems on like Arbitrum or Cosmos or like other layer tools. So the way that we can make it even easier for developers is that we are going to open source this kind of tutorials that we have, this kind of sample smart contracts in different areas, and it would be even much easier. They can take the code and change it in a way that they can learn from that and also even like slightly modify that to address their own needs. And are you starting to get a sense of who your partners might be? You mentioned that these privacy solutions can be kind of ubiquitous across the different verticals in Web3. So are you starting to see an early use case emerging? Are a lot of folks that are coming to you more interested in DeFi? Are they more interested in private governance? Are they more interested in improving the random number generators on chain for games? What's kind of like the early interest look like? So to be honest, we've got like interest in all of those. Like I'm not saying these applications just we've invented. The cool thing is that other people have actually suggested these ideas and we've built it in a way to support them. So like the traction is reverse. So just as an example, for private governance, it was not a huge thing for us. We are like mostly an ABV part, but we got big traction from Cosmos ecosystem and we saw the importance of governance and all of the dramas per second in Cosmos ecosystem. And having a private governance can contribute a lot of value to Cosmos or it can be also deployed anywhere else as well in any DAOs on L2s. It can make the whole process more efficient, faster, and also more accurate because of a lot of reasons. I don't want to go into details. So we got that. We got the traction. We built that. Then we realized that people, so Optimism folks and few Cosmos chains, they asked us about randomness generation protocols, which is not relying on a third party. It's like verifiable on chain and can be easily relayed. So we realized that it's not our main application, but Basically, the key that we are generating in, in each plug, it can easily the source of randomness. It was a pretty low-hanging fruit for us to build that. And for gaming, obviously gaming, it's extremely limited in Cosmos or like Ethereum. And gaming, by now, most of people just think of it as having digital assets, having NFT inside Call of Duty and this kind of stuff. But it's not the full potential of that, right? Gaming... Community, I think it's really big. They're crazy. The conferences are, I don't know, 20 times bigger than any crypto conference. So I think we should give them a chance to have on-chain gaming, which can be kind of cool. 
it's like crypto kitties. Like it's, it's not really logical for me to understand why it can be like very that big. But history has shown us that gaming is one of the sectors that can prove us wrong. <laughs> the point here is that we can have all kind of gamings that needs to prevent asymmetrical access to information. So passing this kind of sexy buzzwords, what I mean really is that you can send your messages while other competitors in the game cannot see them. So for example, in betting, you can bet on something on a future event on a chain or like even like real world events. And while other people cannot see your bets, we can execute it on chain. So I think there's a huge potential for this kind of really simple on chain games. But just to summarize that we've been like really focused on DeFi because the whole thing in crypto is DeFi. So 95% of our focus is in DeFi. So everything like MEV prevention, in a sense, like front training and censorship resistance sequencing, and interestingly, seal pit auctions for things like DeFi, DX, Uniswap, X, PBS auctions, MEV share auctions, and this is stuff, but we couldn't wait for other applications. Those were even easier for us to build and we've already built them or like we are building them in parallel. They're like much easier to operate. And we really didn't want to not execute anything. And we are like executing them while we are still making our path toward like the much more serious projects. So I earned my bread and butter by working in the Neo blockchain ecosystem. Neo is like an OG dino chain from 2016, 2017. And one of the projects I've consistently wanted to get on chain is poker. But if you run an RNG, then anybody can see what the numbers generated are and you can easily cheat the game. So it's a really difficult problem to solve, even though it sounds really simple. So you mentioned that 95% of your use cases right now are DeFi. And I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about how Fairblock can positively impact DeFi. Because if I'm thinking about implementing privacy-preserving features, to me, that sounds like there's another step. And I hope the blocks are super fast because if they're not Tendermint-based one-second blocks, Maybe an additional block that takes a few more minutes or maybe 20 or 30 seconds to have another transaction that shields my identity or hides my limit order or any of that, it might add some downtime. It might decrease the speeds that these privacy tools can provide for DeFi uses. How did you guys address that? If I'm using a DeFi protocol on one chain and I want to ensure my security, by leveraging a fairy ring, there's got to be some cross-chain communication. How did you guys deal with that? How did you guys deal with the perceived kind of reduction in speeds for integrating privacy, but also performing quick DeFi activities? So the good thing about us is that we've really focused on having some kind of experience that doesn't need you to send to a transaction. So the naive way of that is like, I don't know, hashing your transaction, sending it, and then like rebuilding yourself which needs two transactions, it's obviously much, much more expensive. And also, you may not reveal your transaction or your private data later to cheat the system. So with us, like we can use the very same front end of those applications. We don't need to install, a, I don't know, Rust code or another library in your local machine to encrypt your transaction. It's going to be integrated as a JS as in the front end or in the wallet. So 
you have the power of controlling your data and what you are disclosing publicly, what part of your private transaction is going to be disclosed. And you can choose it, you can have the freedom. And the good thing is that that's all you see as a user. You can encrypt it, send it to the whenever you were going to send originally. And the inclusion is like seamless. The encryption, encrypted transactions will be ordered there and included in the block like any other transaction. The challenging part is that application is specific. So for some cases, like for example, swapping, you need to have the decrypted transactions right away. The way that we solve that is that you have a transaction right now, it's included with other people, but somewhere between this block and the next block, we are executing it in a way that people cannot still front run them. So in this space, specifically in Cosmos, we have other solutions in other ecosystems as well, but in Cosmos, the way that it works is that begin block or like finalize block through APCI++. And you will include the transaction, it will be included there, but it will be decrypted right away after the plain text transactions of previous block and plain text transactions of next block. So the good thing is that there is no front running opportunity and our audience doesn't care about having the top of the block because they are not trying to front run other people. They just want to have their own transaction order. And they were not even going to get the top of the block without encryption. So like other transactions, they will get the, I don't know, somewhere in the bottom of the block in ordering, but in the almost the same block. So this was just for swapping. For other stuff like limit orders or intents, it's even like easier because in limit orders, we are not necessarily going to execute it in this block. It almost never happens. You can put your encrypt your limit order and put the condition for execution of that. And instead of relying a centralized server for like holding on your, I don't know, wallet or like on your orders, like private information, you can put it on chain. So there's no like dark pool or like centralized solutions here. You can put it on chain in a blockchain worthy solution. And while it's waiting for execution, it's just private. And once in this case, the prices are met, we can decrypt it and execute it. So the good thing here is that other people cannot see your strategy or the amount of your limit order and some other information. The point that I'm trying to make is that in this case, we have zero privacy, we have full privacy, but full privacy doesn't help with the execution. We are somehow in the spectrum, right? We are trying to be realistic with this. And for auctions in general, auctions can be like really interestingly useful in DeFi. And the reason for that is that you can use that in many, many infra-level protocols for MEV share, flashbots, or like execution tickets, I don't know, lotteries. In Ethereum mainnet, in DX, they're having like batching auctions, like a skip team, they're having decentralized MEV auctions, and Uniswap X, they have like Dutch ordering auctions, right? But auctions in general, like we have Silbit auctions and like normal auctions, and Silbit auctions, generally promote a more fair and decentralized ecosystem for people to interact because other people cannot see your information while you are bidding. Or like there is another problem. If you are running it in a centralized format, like centralized auctioneer like Flashbots, or running it in a public blockchain, there is always the case that there is a last look problem. The block proposer or the centralized auctioneer, they can always see the information and put a bid themselves or like work with other market makers or like liquidity providers to 
only put their transaction there only if they are like making absolute profits. So it's not like predicting or competition. It's basically some kind of generalized MEV. And in some cases, you don't need to have it inside this plug. So we can still have like a lot of time for executing that in a lazy manner. You can encrypt your bits. It will provide like better values to the users at the end of the day. But in the cases that we really needed to have it, like in that specific chain, we have some ideas as well. So like in the case of Skip one that I mentioned, we are using ABCI++ and basically it will be executed in the same block. So my point here is that it's like an ongoing area. It's very open. We are like fortunate to be like one of the only few teams that are working on that. We are seeing increasingly more interest in this area. Like just yesterday, Paradigm, posted something about Silbit auctions, which is basically a like very naive version of what we've been building so far. They are proposing a Silbit auction, but they have like multiple rounds of interactions. But in this case, in our implementation, since we are using identity-based encryption or like FHE and threshold decryption, the good thing is that we don't need any like collateral or like any further rounds of communication. People can basically send their single message and that's all. We don't need any collateral or any extra runs of communication. One thing that I really want to touch on that is that privacy is not something that is widely adopted in other industries unless there's two conditions. Like one condition is obviously major pushback from governments or users, something that we've seen with like Facebook, with like differential privacy and other solutions. Or like in Google, they're like cryptographic schemes. The other way of having a successful privacy preserving project is that privacy means like more profits or something that is like incentive aligned with the user as well. So it doesn't mean that you are spending extra money to just get privacy. The interesting thing that really got me in crypto is that in many, many cases, having privacy, it either introduced like a better UX. So like in auction or like private governance, it means that smaller window of time. Other people are not waiting for the very, very last minute for submitting their bits or they are not updating their bits because of other side information. There's like one bit and that's all in the same block. It's finalized and it's better for users. Like game theoretically, it provides better value because those searchers are not over-optimizing everything. So at the end of the day, it will be a better value for the auctioneer themselves and all of the end users, like real end users of blockchains. And in other solutions like swapping or like intents, you are basically encrypting your transaction to not lose money. So you may spend like $2 extra, but you are saving hundreds of dollars of potential front running if you are swapping. So this is like really interesting that having extra privacy features almost in most cases means more potential like revenue or not losing money which makes me like really bullish on privacy preserving infrastructures or applications. Payman, that's awesome. We're nearing the end of our time. So if anyone who's out there, whether you're a DAO, a DEX, a game, you're building on Ethereum and L2 or Cosmos, whatever it is, what's the best way for these folks to get in contact with you and your team? If you have like a Twitter account and also our Discord channel, I really want to have more feedback and brainstorming with all of the builders in the space and thinkers. It would be awesome to have them 
in our Twitter and Discord. Awesome. Well, Payman, thank you so much for coming to talk about Fairblock and privacy-preserving technologies. It was a really fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed learning more about your background, what kind of drives you and what you guys are working on. It's really exciting. And I look forward to keeping my ears to the ground and following the progress you guys make. Thank you so much. So our public tester is also launching at the beginning of March. And look, we are really excited to work with teams and have already expressed their interest in building with Fairblack or like seeing new projects that may contact us later. So keep your eyes out for some updates. Thank you so much for having me in this podcast. It really meant a lot to me to be here. This was a great conversation and you heard it here, folks. Testnet next month. So be sure to check it out. And Payman, we look forward to having you on an episode back in the future to potentially look back on a lot of the positive strides that you and your team were able to make. So thank you so much for joining the pod and we'll catch you later. Thank you so much for making it happen. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought it was fascinating to learn more about Payman's background growing up in Iran and how that experience has shaped his ideology and philosophy about free and open access to financial systems and the internet. I really enjoyed learning more about the various different types of use cases that this privacy enhancing chain can provide for different ecosystems. And it was great to delve into the positive virtues of privacy and how this is just not something that is valuable to criminals but is beneficial to every person who accesses these fair and open blockchain networks. To keep up to date with the podcast, head over to www.smarteconomypodcast.com. And if you've liked the guests that we've had on the show, please consider showing support by rating and reviewing the show on your favorite podcasting platform. Every review and rating really helps us get this show in front of more people's eyes and ears. And of course, if you're a NEO token holder, please consider voting for NEO News today as your council representative. We've proudly been serving the NEO ecosystem since 2017, and will continue to do so by putting portions of our council income directly back into ecosystem growth initiatives. With all that said, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast, and we look forward to catching you on the next episode.